0: Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Tuesday, January the 25th. It's a pretty loaded show today, so we're glad you found us. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca talks about vaccine mandates, boosters, okay? We differ slightly on how to define a fully vaccinated individual right now. There's a big difference between doing it for adults, doing it for kids as well, and we start talking about other issues with healthcare and education that are going to be pretty important for him as he attempts to become the next premier of the province In the next four months, Anthony Fury is on the show as well from the Toronto Sun. We're talking education with Dr. Charles Pascal. I love our talks with Chuck. He makes time for us and you, the listener, and we'll do our fantastic four, which involves sharks, vacations, and a few other things. It's all coming up next. Toronto Today begins now. I want to start here, and this is unbelievably important. Um, We've got lots of issues with uh, kids and things we're worried about right now, and I think I'm uh, incredibly uh, upset, uh, obsessed with this, uh, and I watched Dope Sick all last week. The uh, It was a Hulu show, but you can find it on uh, Disney Plus, and uh, it's about the opioid crisis and how um, the opioids and Purdue Pharma marketed OxyContin, sold OxyContin, and really pushed uh, OxyContin hard on certain communities. There was a mining community that's documented in the movie, Michael Ke- in the uh, mi- miniseries, Michael Keaton said. It's only eight episodes, and I'm quite sure they're not coming back for a second season because it just tells the tale of the book called uh, Dope Sick. But um, we're getting to the point with the opioid crisis that um, there's just no there's no turning back, and it has been absolutely blasted open by the pandemic. I see headlines that experts aren't sure what's, what's you know, what the gross about. I'm like, they're not. They should be. It's uh, It's the fact that we have put all our eggs in one particular health basket. And there were times, times when that was the right thing to do. But if you ask any parent of any teenager, and and it, you know it doesn't have to be teenagers, far from it, because in this in Dope Sick you see a ton of people get addicted to it. I don't want to give it anything away, but but many of the main um, protagonists that you're rooting for hard in Dope Sick are getting uh, are getting addicted there as well, and it just isn't one. City and it just isn't one place. Okay, it's not one demographic, and this is all about the Sackler family that kind of spawned the opioid crisis. They were forcing uh, marketing into into the U.S. ecosystem, and uh, and that ecosystem came up here, and and we ended up dealing with it. So um, it's it's a, there's a great story in the Washington Post about what has happened, and uh, and it's way worse than it was. More than one million people have died in the overdose crisis and we're, we're not talking about it the same way we are the other thing, okay? And we obviously have stigmatized people with uh, who use opioids. We have talked about safe injection sites. Well, you know how that goes in the city of Toronto. Let's put a safe injection site here, well not in our neighborhood. You have heard, you've heard before, I know that you have, the premier of the province talk about it and um, look, uh, they're juggling a lot of balls right now. Uh, I don't doubt that that's true, but I think there's a couple things that have turned the page, that we've turned the page on during this particular uh, crisis. Now, the province cut. Um, this is pre-pandemic. The, uh, the The province decided to cut some injection sites because area residents were, um, to quote Doug Ford, upset. And Toronto's medical officer of health, let me put a big defense in for Dr. Eileen DeVilla. I agree with her sometimes. I adamantly disagree with her on other things, and most of those disagreements are the myopic focus on COVID, and especially that of kids. I disagree with the premise of forcing vaccination on uh, five-year-olds. I do not believe in that right now. I'd love for people to, dis- to make the decision for themselves, and the more kids we have vaccinated, the better. But Dr. Davila pushed back on Doug Ford, Um, and said, no, that's wrong. They were going to stop funding some safe injection sites, and Dr. Davila simply said, people will die. Like, like, Let's put it bluntly. People will die. These are life-saving services. Uh, Doug Ford at the time, and it's, it's remarkable to look back, as we have an election coming up. Stephen Del Duca will join me, bottom of the hour, by the way, Ontario Liberal leader. But it's remarkable to look back and think there were a lot of things that the Ford government said they would do, and they went ahead and did it. And um, you shouldn't have been shocked by it. The concept was there will be cuts to health care. By the way, were there health cuts before under Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGinty? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's some of what I'm going to talk with Stephen Del Duca about in uh, 20 minutes at the bottom of the hour. That said, there were more than enough people pointing out he got elected. He got a majority. The people did speak. Everybody gets a vote. I'm telling people that about this June. Um, who want the chaos and disorder right now, and you know that they do, and you know that that's true, and it's easy to figure out who wants schools to go well, you know, most people like who have like a soul, and you, who wants chaos and disorder because they'll get a political outcome they think benefits them, or their body um, their body politic in June, and that's wrong, okay? Like that, then we, we really are figuratively using our kids as pawns. But uh, the the opioid crisis is not going away. It's going to get more play this week. And I thought it was a really interesting read in the Washington Post about it. Um, it's one of those scenarios where the, we're going to have to use this and push forward to say many people are looking towards other means. We know binge drinking is up. We know health general health and welfare because of the stop start in terms of exercise is at an all-time low. It just it, it is, at least in the last several years. Let's not go all time. We like to, you know, p- push ourselves out there as a fit society and that's been harder to do and harder to maintain. We all know it. It's just it's so patently obvious. Um, and by the way, let me make the case. opioids can't be banned. They are incredibly useful. For people they are they make people better they benefit from them under proper prescription and and proper usage so doctors that prescribe them are not the villain here people in pain are not the villain here i've had two knee surgeries okay i had one in 2003 like really really young like uh and uh and i had one i had a what i have a torn um uh a torn meniscus in 2013 and they get you better quickly. And I'm lucky because for whatever reason, it just didn't take with me. I'm, I don't have an addictive personality, but I know people that have taken them after surgeries and had tremendous problems, tremendous problems getting uh, getting off them. So, And men are more twice as, let's talk about that. Can we do that? Men are more than twice as likely to die from opioids and a drug overdose than women. I could go into all sorts of reasons and theories that experts have as to why exactly that is. Uh, but it's it's not even close. 92,000 Americans, and it's believed 11,000 Canadians, died of drug overdoses in 2020. That was a 30% increase from in 2019. The 2021 numbers via this story are going to be even higher, even higher. So that's a concerning truth, and the underreporting is it's disproportionately killing to be honest, guys like me, it's disproportionately killing men 24 to 34. So we think of it as a teenager thing. We do. And every parent says it also to me. Think thinking about it. It's the one thing. It's one big thing you want your kids to avoid. They're going to get hooked on something, potentially. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. They'll make their mistakes. But this is the one thing. It's a crisis of younger men. That the opioid deaths are are happening to. I thought it was an interesting read. I'll link it on my Twitter account at Greg Brady T O. Let me switch to this. Um, Eric Clapton, you're well aware of who he is. Did this is the first audio I've really heard of him. Uh, he has taken you know a turn for the worse in the public eye, but let me explain where he is. Um, I think he's rather wrong about this. I think he's incredibly wrong about this, and I think he's confused what is actually public health messaging, which you're allowed to push back on and go, not so sure that's right for me. I'm going to talk to my doctor. I, the big complaint I've had about public health messaging is it isn't one size fits all, but they make it so. It isn't a scenario where they walk something back and say, you know what we got wrong here? Here's this. And and this is why we believe this now. That They just pretend it was never said. And that's a big problem. But this is a super hot take, if you will, about people who get vaccinated against COVID nineteen. And Clapton was one of those people. Clapton got vaccinated. I think that's so misunderstood out there. He said he had an adverse reaction to it as an older man. He, uh, you know, it, it gave him a lot of pain in his arm for a long period of time. And he sees the public health messaging campaign where he lives in the UK. And it's not like anybody hasn't said this in Canada, encouraging people to get a safe, effective vaccine. And I've seen that messaging also. I I could poke some holes in it here and there. But obviously, with three vaccines in me, uh, I support the message. There are considerable conversations and debates to have about what do we do with the mandate going forward? Who should be vaccinated and who shouldn't? What do we do about boosters and younger people? who don't necessarily need what your 78-year-old dad does, somebody the age of the president, Joe Biden. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Clapton even said this on the podcast about news coverage and how it started to change in the UK.
1: The news stuff that was coming out in England and the UK, we had BBC, um, and it mm-hmm. used to be an impartial uh, <laughs> commentary on world affairs and state affairs. Sure. And, and suddenly it was like... A, it was completely one way traffic about um following uh, orders and obedience and um i thought well i'm not going to i don't stop watching tv and now i'm going to i and i felt really motivated uh, musically i felt like i could uh it gave me it instigated something which had really was laying dormant i was just
0: I found the interview fascinating. I watched a good nine minutes of it last night. It's long, um, you know. If you've seen The Irishman, it's uh you know it, it's a good one fifth of The Irishman. And Clapton did make the case. His family were worried for him. His friends are scared for him. Um, I've got two people really close to me who have not taken the vaccine. One has moved uh, to the United States, and I- I'm not. I'm not not going to be friends with him. I didn't feel I wouldn't feel strange around him seeing him. I would welcome him into my home. Um, But I know I know it's that concept has ripped families apart and he doesn't force a lot of views on me. We agree to disagree about the benefits and about the uh, cost risk analysis that goes with getting vaccinated. We just disagree on that. What the problem is with Eric Clapton here is his he defines his disastrous health experience, which he describes it, and blames propaganda for overstating the safety of the vaccine. And I don't know that I can go there. In fact, I'm quite certain that I can't. By the way, he got two AstraZeneca vaccinations uh, in February and then later on in April. Um, so he had a severe reaction, said it lasted 10 days, and got told it'd be 12 weeks before the second one. If you know somebody whose who's booster made them feel a little funky for a couple weeks, you're not alone either. Okay? You're not alone. But that's a massive difference than starting to talk about some, you know, mass, wide-ranging conspiracy, big farmers involved, the government's here, the government's there. There are messaging – there is messaging that I would prefer to hear that I think is important to hear about overall health that hasn't been there from the beginning. We didn't talk early enough about risk groups. We didn't talk enough about comorbidities. We didn't talk enough about, and you can't exactly turn things around quickly. If you're 40 pounds overweight, the pandemic starts, best of luck losing those 40 pounds, okay? You're not gonna be eating watercress sandwiches and and, uh, and eating tuna fish from a can, like you're training for a fight. Uh, non-stop for 14 months. That's a big ask given everything that we're dealing with. But the Clapton thing is really, really interesting. Yeah, short-term side effects, but there aren't going to be long-term, long-range side effects about the vaccines. There just aren't, okay? And that's a big thing that is, that's a big line that I think people cross here in suggesting so because there aren't any, there aren't any for any other vaccine that we're aware of. That, like, If you get it, If you get vaccinated, you'll feel some form of uh, short-term impact, whether it's significant or not, in the early days or in the first couple weeks. But afterwards, no, that's not meant to be the concept. I get parents. I'm with you parents. You need real-world data before you decide if you want to vaccinate a healthy five-year-old or a healthy three-year-old for that matter. And I don't have a five-year-old. I might have done it already. I rushed right out and did it for my 13-year-old and 15-year-old, and they got their two shots in the summer. Am I really eager to get them a third? Do I want to be forced into getting it? To be perfectly fair, to be perfectly honest, I certainly don't. Not right now. I feel their best scenario is staying the course and going where they go. I'm eager to uh, have a conversation with our next guest. He is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, and he is up early for us, and we appreciate that. He is Stephen Del Duca. Stephen, our first chat of uh, 2022, uh, your alarm clock's still working. You get, maybe you got a fresh one for Christmas. That's a good sign.
2: <laughs> Thanks for having me back on, Greg. The dogs oh. woke me up hours ago. So the
0: dogs will do that. Yeah, my cat wakes me yeah. up at 4 a.m. on on Saturday. Going, don't you have a show <laughs> to do? And I'm like, you wish. Uh, but he's just there for the food. As a matter of fact, I see this. Um, I see this interesting news from uh, from Robert Benzi that uh, that your campaign is utilizing a team based on some previous uh, elections. Um, tell me a little bit about that and and sort of what the strategy is behind that.
2: Well, I'm really, really lucky to have a great team of women and men who stepped up to volunteer their time over the last number of months to get ready for an election campaign that's going to begin in about 100 days. It's a really good blend of some exciting new people who've never been in senior roles in the campaign combined with some veterans who have been through quite a few through different uh, different leaders in the past within our party. I think it's a great mix. I am a really big believer that experience matters, but I'm also excited that we've got a lot of new talent as well. So it's a good team, it's a dynamic team, and I'm quite lucky to have them on my side.
0: Robert says in the story, writes in the story, uh, that you've got 70 candidates so far. It's a 124-seat legislature. When do you hope to have your, your full team together? And and it's uh, it's not a major issue, you're on track, but what are some of the... Um, are there any delays in terms of finding the right candidate in certain ridings?
2: Well, my, my strongest hope, of course, is to have everybody in place before the election campaign. That is still our goal. I think we've got a really good plan to get there. Um, you remember that we obviously are a party because of what happened in 2018. We, we didn't have as many incumbents running for us as some of the other parties do. So we have more, I'll say, holes to fill because of that. But when I look at our candidate roster, again, I'm talking about such an incredible team, great experience from let's call it the real world, every walk of life, front lines of education, healthcare, the business community, uh, the sustainability community. It is a really phenomenal group. Again, a lot of newcomers, lots of new energy, and uh, I'm just I can't get over how lucky I am to be working with this this kind of this kind of group.
0: Stephen Del Duca, our guest Ontario Liberal Leader on Toronto Today uh, with Greg Brady on 640 uh, Toronto. The Premier made mention of this last week, um, you know, he was pressed and fairly so about health capacity in the province, ICU beds in the province, and he made reference uh, to the Wynn government laying health care positions off in 2015. If you look back, uh, were any of the cuts from the Liberal Party too deep? Is there one thing you could go into the time machine, I'm sure every politician has it, and you could say, you know what, we might, we might to slice things a little too thin there going into the Ford government and knowing that that was going to happen regardless.
2: Well, you know, I've said this, I think, before, maybe on your show, certainly elsewhere. Doug Ford is always entitled to his opinion. He's not really entitled to his own set of facts. I was happy to see that that same day, the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario released information that showed that Doug was off the mark with his comments. And in fact, on a per capita basis, it's been under his leadership because of decisions that he's made that we have uh, sort of we're at our lowest ebb when it comes to the registered nurses we have working in the province. I will say, and I've said this many times before as well, I think we did a lot of good things while in power. Uh, there were some things that I think we were we, you know, if we could do over again, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. If we had known that a pandemic was coming, we probably would have beefed up the investments in our hospital capacity and our public health capacity nobody knew that it was coming but it's a good lesson to learn for going forward how we create a healthcare system that's actually resilient like it can withstand crises like we've just had to experience and still are uh, starting back in in, in early 2020
0: is there any issue that's even a remote, close um, priority issue beyond healthcare? Like instantly, I think as I say the words, I think education. But education is being impacted by our healthcare capacity right now. If we had two or three times the healthcare capacity in this province, magically, I would wager that schools wouldn't have closed on January third. Is healthcare above and beyond uh, the number one issue for you and your team? Mm.
2: You know, I will say that I think both and you hit the nail on the head. I think it is about uh, public health care, but it's also about publicly funded education. Those I look at those as the twin pillars upon which everything else rests in this province. If we don't get each of those right, if we don't make sure that each of those systems are exceptional and resilient, then, you know, we've kind of lost the plot as the saying goes. So Mm. both are going to require an incredible rebuild and recovery in the aftermath of COVID, uh, and that's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of dedication, and frankly, it's going to take a big investment. So uh, there is a ton of work that the next premier of this province is going to have to do, but healthcare and education it really those are the twin pillars
0: I had this conversation with I guess I had call her uh, one of your adversaries in attempting uh to to run government uh, Merritt Styles and I said to her the NDP education critic before Christmas I said I want you to advocate for open schools we can talk about safe schools and class sizes and ventilation and HEPA filters and n95s and those are all priorities and I you're not going to get an argument from me the government hasn't done its job but but I wanted her to advocate for schools to stay open through January was it a mistake to close schools on January 3rd
2: you know I this is one that I struggle with of course you know I've said it to you many many times before my daughters are in the system and it's something that my wife and I talked about a lot over the Christmas break and we wrestled with you know do we want them to go back and right away or not you know grave concerns I still have concerns about whether or not those two weeks were used well by the provincial government or whether they were kind of wasted or squandered I think it's more likely the latter than it is the former. So, look, I think you're right. When I talk about building a system that's resilient, that's what I'm talking about, building a system that's resilient so that learning never stops for our kids. That, in essence, learning becomes almost like an essential service, something that is able to withstand, able to pivot able to remain open through thick and thin, and that's just not where we've been the last couple of years. It is where we need to be, though, as a province,
0: for sure. Stephen Del Duca is our guest Ontario Liberal leader on Toronto Today. When when you look around the rest of, of the continent, and we were right here last April and May, albeit in better weather, albeit with, with bright days ahead, we were all starting to line up, get vaccinated, and we did that. Boy, did Ontario step up and do that. Did the GTA ever do that? I, I think we got a lot to be proud of. That said... Um, you hear from constituents. You hear from voters. I, the majority of people I hear, um, they're not "quote unquote." I know that was making the rounds on the weekend. The phrase "done with COVID," but th- they're done with not talking about trade-offs. They're not. They're done with not talking about risk, benefit, and that cost-benefit analysis to their kids. And and there's not too many parents. I've got teenage boys. COVID. It's not the last thing on my mind. And looking out for the healthcare system is not the last thing on my mind. But to be honest, I got bigger fish to fry to get them where they need to get to. You must be hearing from parents that say that to you.
2: I I am for sure. But I did a call just last Friday with some, I'll say, representatives from different. I mean, there were mostly parents on the call with me. It was a Zoom call. They're all from the GTA. And there were two people on that call, one in particular, who was literally, literally like in tears on the Zoom call about her decision and her husband's decision to keep their elementary school age kids at home for virtual learning, which she really hated to have to do. Mm-hmm. But her point was, I just, I want my kids to be back in school, but I'm also not prepared to sacrifice my kids with so many different unknowns. When the class sizes are so large, She, this is these are her words, when we don't know what's happening, when the kids have to take their masks off during obviously eating their lunch and all of that stuff, like we just have too many concerns. So I think that you're right. There are a lot of people who are looking at the trade-offs, as you put it, but there are just a lot of people who are still quite upset that we're not, they, they don't feel that they have the peace of mind to send their kids back. And so, like, everybody loses in this kind of scenario because for now nearly two years, Doug Ford has not made the investments from the very beginning in education. And I would say his work, I mean, he, I, you know, I think he's performed poorly across the board, but his worst performance since the very beginning has without a doubt been in publicly funded education as it relates to our schools. And I have no idea why. Like, I can't understand what the mental block is that he has for publicly funded education, but it's appalling.
0: The um the the idea of uh, of the booster. I know Doug Ford laid it out last week. They're gonna keep the definition of fully vaccinated the same. This is a this is not just a wrestling match in many US states. It's a mud wrestling match. I understand the concept of it and you and I have talked about the boosters before. Last conversation we had, I think I said um I'm not sure that we should open it up to eighteen plus because we're gonna see a race. I see Joe Cressy, the Toronto City Councilor, tweet today that we're st- you know, it's a positive. We're at fifty-five percent now for a booster over 65 population but that's nowhere near where we need to be and we need boosters in more vulnerable people than we do 20 year old college students would you change the the definition of, of fully vaccinated and would there be an age contingency to that
2: I would make that change I, I called for that last week I think I feel pretty strongly about it I uh, I think we're somewhere just below 6 million Ontarians it's around 5.7 5. 5.8 5. million who've gotten the third dose I've certainly got mine my wife has as well I want to see that number come up. I'd be prepared to have a conversation about whether it should be thrown open, starting off with 18 and above or a different age threshold. I would want to hear from the doctors and the science science folks on that. But I think the general concept is I want to see that number climb and climb quickly. You are right off the top today. You said Ontarians have done their part. They've done really well with vaccination rates. The two categories that I'm still most concerned about, people in general getting their boosters, and our youngest kids the kids below the age of 12 down to the age of 5 I feel that we're making progress there but that number is still too low that's why I think we need to raise confidence confidence in parents so that our youngest kids are also stepping up to get their shot. So those are the two categories I'm most concerned about right
0: now. I can't I can't back or advocate um, these universities asking for a third shot among among healthy kids to go back to school. They're fully vaccinated. We're really we're being really harsh in our schools right now, and and you know this and I know this. There's kids paying full freight. Parents have saved up their whole life to send their kid to university, and they're sitting there, and, and four to five classes are on Zoom, and they feel more locked down than than you are. I are exponentially. Um, I, I I just can't advocate for a third shot for a, a 19, 20 year old. I think it should be available and, and, and and you know, doctors and and people who handle health should be talking, having conversations with parents. But I worry we're, we're at a slippery slope if we mandate it for, for perfectly healthy 18, 19 year olds. I, I My teenage boys, I don't want a third shot in them. Uh, they've had two in the past nine months. I think they're safe. Like that stuff's going to, those are the conversations you're going to hear in the next four months. And I know you know that.
2: But what's the? I mean, out of curiosity, what's the downside to your boys getting their third shot?
0: What I see is Pfizer's own analysis that shows boosters would prevent a potential hospitalization for them at the same pace that potential uh, myocarditis would be a problem. It's not. It's not a zero risk game uh, for a third shot with men under forty and certainly teenage boys.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I I look. It's. I understand where you're coming from. I think. I think the best bet for us is to make sure that. We are we are encouraging as strongly as we possibly can everybody across the board who is eligible to step up and get the boosters. The boosters are there; they are available. Uh, we have the supply. I know very early on there were con- I mean last year there were concerns about supply issues. Those don't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, you're right uh, about that. that.
2: Yeah, and I think I think we just want to put everybody in the very best position to get through this. So. Completely respect your opinion, but I I really do think the booster shot should be part of the vaccine certificate going forward.
0: But you use the word encourage and encourage and mandate would be, you know, wholly at odds with each other.
2: Well, like, again, let's let's be clear. What I'm really keen to see is that number of nearly six million climb fairly substantially so that we do have a I'll call it from my perspective, fully and properly immunized population to the extent that it's possible, aside from those that have genuine medical exemptions or other human rights code concerns or look for accommodations in that regard. I just want to see us to, I want to see us all be in the strongest position possible. So I understand what you're saying. I just it's okay for us to agree to disagree. Oh yeah,
0: topic, yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> I, I I'd love a mandate at thirty-five or forty or over. I would I would absolutely I I jump up and down at that because I we're, we're not getting the the messaging clearly is falling short or there's a a public health distrust. I can't figure it out. I want to ask you about expanding the use of vaccine certificates. Um, I, I I guess it's similar to what we've seen in Quebec. What's your stance on what Premier Legault did? Would you do that with with non-essential retail with LCBOs etc.
2: You know, I think it's something that is, when we talk about LCBOs, we talk about cannabis stores, for example, I think it's something that does merit consideration. I think it's probably the right direction to go. And at this point, again, all, all because I wanna see, and I think many of us just wanna see, people who might not even be vaccine hesitant, they just, frankly, they're busy, you know, and they haven't booked their appointment. And maybe it's logistically a little bit tough for them to navigate the system. Whatever we can do to nudge people like that in that group, uh towards getting the vaccine done to, to towards doing the right thing I, I think is worth it at this point in time so yeah i'm, I'm open to the idea of the lcbo's cannabis stores i think it's something we need to talk about in the coming days for sure
0: stephen del duca ontario liberal leader i enjoy our conversations i know our audience does too by their reaction uh thanks for making the time for our listeners today
2: my pleasure thanks so much greg take you,
0: care you bet you too uh and your family stephen del duca ontario liberal leader we'll I love talking education and anything under the sun with our next guest. He wrote a book about it as well, called "Leading from the Inside Out." He stole my title. Uh, hard-earned lessons from education, government, and uh, baseball. He is Dr. Charles Pascal. It's great to have you on. It's been forever since we talked. You're one of my favorite guests. I don't know how the gap of uh, of time. And now I know. I know I'm your favorite show. You don't have to mention who's second, third, or fourth in Toronto. But but it's a marriage made in heaven, Charles. It really is.
1: Well, you are my favorite show. <laughs> Uh, because I keep getting uh, invites to talk about all sorts of things related to public education from uh, other outlets. And I'm so tired of hearing my, my own voice, but, uh, when your uh, producer calls, I respond.
0: Thank God. Yeah, and um, please, at the end of the interview, list all the shows alphabetically that you say no to. I think people should know where they <laughs> where <they> should. <laughs> um, so so how much? I mentioned to, to uh, Stephen Del Duca, I said, on the campaign trail, health care is going to become massive. And, and he says education and health care as interlinked. I don't think we closed schools on January 3rd. Once. I don't think we should have anyway. That's me saying that. But. I, I also think if we had a greater health care capacity, it wouldn't have even been a consideration given most of our individual perspectives with our own household safety. Uh, how much will we get into education on the campaign trail leading into the next provincial election? You're a veteran of this. You tell me.
1: Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I guess I would quote uh, uh, my favorite uh, premier of all time, and that's William Grenville Davis, uh, You know who we lost uh, mm-hmm. you know, a number of months ago, who said, if we get education right, everything else will take care of itself, including uh, health care costs and things like that. So it's a, they're inextricably uh, related. Uh, I think both of them uh, will uh, will be a campaign trail um, uh, worthy. Uh, every, everybody knows somebody who's in school. Uh, you know, you have a, a son who I believe yeah. is in high school, and I hope he's uh, uh, doing well under the circumstances. Uh, but they're they're both going to be out there in the campaign trail. My hope is that uh, Stephen and uh, uh, and the other two opposition leaders uh, will start uh, talking with each other about rising above their own kind of partisan uh, sense of gaining power uh, to do something that uh, basically calls attention uh, to how uh, each of those uh, related uh, areas of our lives uh, can be uh, dealt with. In ways that are far better than what has
0: been happening. How'd you react when schools closed on the third?
1: Well, I, you know, it's just the the problem is uh, on again, off again, and it's uh, this is uh, this is a government we've talked about this before uh, that sticks its finger up in the air and decides which way the wind is blowing, and we get uh, messages that just just are confusing. I mean, the notion that um, the notion that thirty uh, percent uh, absenteeism uh, will close the school. I don't know what epidemiological uh, evidence suggests that, you know, that was an intelligent thing to do. So it, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it's not the the closing of the schools and the opening of the schools. It's that that doesn't seem to be a sustainable plan to make the right investments well ahead of uh, trying to, to figure out uh, what's the safest and healthiest thing, obviously for the mental health, and well-being of our kids, uh, being back in school is uh, is really important. Uh, but parents out there and students alike uh, are very confused. They don't know yeah. what's next uh, under these very difficult circumstances. But you know, you got to get ahead of it. You got to anticipate, and you got to put the right resources in, including class sizes and uh, and all the right protections, rather than uh, the rhetoric that comes out of the, the mouth of. Uh, a particular
0: premier and his minister of education, Charles Pascal, is our guest on Toronto today. Um, I I I'm of two minds. One is that I'm I'm hearing from a lot of teachers that say I I got boosted; those extra two weeks mattered, or I got it over the Christmas holidays. I've got an I've got they have supplied us with n95 masks. That's what I'm hearing from the majority of teachers. So I feel safe. But then I turn and I go, anybody who's going to advocate uh, for for education. Can't just do the teachers. Can't just do the school boards and the unions. You got to think about six and seven-year-old kids and how much learning loss there's been, Charles. And and you've asked about my kid. My kid's fine, but I don't have a five-year-old. I don't know that I could watch. And I had a speech-delayed second kid who won't shut up now, but you don't know at three, four, or five how it's all going to work out. So could I have put him in a mask 35 hours a week knowing he needs to see his teacher's face and they need to see his? I'm not sure. These are the things real parents are wrestling with right now. So I'm, I'm trying. To take the politics out of it, but it's not easy.
1: No, it's not easy. And, and I think, we've got to remember, we've got to go back before the pandemic where the kinds of issues you've just raised were very present, depending mm-hmm. on uh, how many kids were in a family, which ones were doing really, really well, which ones were getting to kind of wrap around a support for a learning disability or uh, other issues related to mental health and uh, and those kinds of things. Those things were present before the pandemic. And so the pandemic. Really has pulled back the curtain, and how much we need to do to uh, transform and improve uh, public education. Uh, you know, as a result of what we, uh, more people know now. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've got a couple grandkids who are uh, very uh, different regarding wanting to get back to school. High need for affiliation. They want to be back with their peers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have uh, uh, another uh, grand uh, granddaughter who uh, basically uh, feels very differently about. Uh, about school and so those kinds of things need to be understood and adapted to uh far better uh, than they used to be and the pandemic is uh, has really revealed uh, uh how little uh we have done. remember the pandemic uh, pre-pandemic uh, this government uh, increased class sizes and did a whole bunch of other things that were just uh not in support. No, they, they, the
0: that, they, they didn't support the teachers and that, that didn't support uh, the case of each individual kid. I'm ridiculously tight for time. We have to have a long conversation. Hey, by the way, I'm not going to let this go. Alex Rodriguez, does he get? would you vote for him for the Hall of Fame? You have to, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I would vote for uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson and Pete Rose and Barry
0: Bonds. <laughs> uh, I, the the what about Kurt Schilling? Do you draw the line at uh, at the bloody sock? What do you do there?
1: I, I, I try to take politics out of uh, <laughs> a baseball. Uh, Kurt and I have different political uh, worldviews, but uh, no, I, I, I push him in as well. The hypocrisy, and I, you know, about my baseball background. Yeah, I have seen up close uh, the deliverance of uh, amphetamines to uh, players I won't name, uh, who nobody talks about, who are considered squeaky clean that's right and uh, it's just uh the, the drug thing is just a uh drives me crazy
0: all right you and i are gonna you're, we're gonna reveal all the skeletons in our next chat charles you have a great morning thanks for coming on with me all right take good care man. you got it man charles pascal uh buy that book uh it's great leading from the inside out harder and lessons from education government and baseball I'll give you this before we get to uh anthony uh dr ashish K. Jha, Brilliant! Like if I could put him on the Mount Rushmore of guys or men or women that I've followed and think he's on to something. He seems to to pivot. We all know that if you use the phrase "follow the science," now you're probably not following the science. But Dr. Jaw has been on it. Okay, so Brown University um, runs their whole you know medical department. How hard could that be? Here's what he writes overnight. We're in a transition moment in this pandemic. We're coming off highs of the worst surge of infections we've ever had. Cases are high, but starting to fall in much of the nation. This moment raises lots of questions with one big one. What happens next? Here's his thread. And I want to bring up something. He points out again more about infections falling fast. He documents high levels of population immunity, which nobody, nobody in public health in Ontario or Canada talks about or has talked about. Why? Your guess is as good as mine. But he writes this, given the likely upcoming reprieve, meaning a lot of boosted folks, that's great. Older folks boosted. That's awesome. uh, What should we do? As case numbers fall and hospital capacity improves meaningfully, we should relax public health restrictions, including relaxing mask mandates and indoor gathering limits. Why? And this is the key part here. Why not leave them on? because mandates are costly and should be used sparingly, and because during future surges, we may need to ask people to pull back or mask up again. And this is the part I love the most. Preserving people's willingness to do things is critical. Also, we should use the retrieve uh, reprieve to prepare. So he knows there's going to be more surges. There's going to be another variant. All that is true. Vaccines, testing, therapeutics, they all factor in, but trust in public health, Again, you keep yelling fire in a crowded movie theater, eventually people are going to stay in their seats. They just are. They just are. I'm not telling you that those are my rules. I'm telling you what the rules are, and we all know it. Anthony Fury joins me now from the Toronto Sun. Do I have a lot of that right? Like, again, I get when the panic button button has been pushed, and I've agreed that there's been times to push panic over the last 22 months. This month in Ontario, I, I I haven't seen the data back it up.
3: I think it's a very good point, Greg. And, and I, I do wish, to the point of that expert you quoted, that, uh, for instance, in the past two summers in Ontario, we had dropped the mask mandates, we had dropped pretty much all restrictions because there's really not much going on during the summer. So give people that mental retrieve, uh, let people know that it's okay to go into the grocery store for a few minutes, not wearing a mask, because maybe they're going to decide later on, they want to bring it in again, uh, as, as the season gets colder. So yeah, these are things, you know, we really got to talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm quite concerned right now about the, the sort of mental state of a lot of people. Uh, Particularly here in Ontario, I was writing in a column about BC Chief Medical Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, who's basically trying to walk people uh, away from the ledge in terms of their incredible COVID anxieties, saying, uh, look, we found the Omicron is so much milder, the hospitalization rates are lower, the vaccines are working, Mm -hmm. they're reducing Mm -hmm. severity. That's why Bonnie Henry says we need to start treating this like influenza, like the cold. Uh, which she means basically the medical system is looking to take care of people. We want to do what we can for uh, to have people avoid having serious outcomes. We want to treat them uh, with treatments in hospital, but we don't need this sort of whole-of-society approach with all these broad-based overbearing rules. They've been talking about that in Alberta. They've been talking about it in B.C. You bet in the U.S. Well, they don't even talk about COVID in parts of the U.S. anymore. In the U.K., that's what they're talking about. Here in Ontario, we're really stuck in a rut, Greg, and it's concerning.
0: I feel there's a framing going on too, and I think it's done out of desperation by some. And and uh, I I played that clip last week of Dr. Lucy McBride, who we have on all the time, who is the most measured, calm, uh, you know, rational person I've seen. She's an internist in D.C. who who used the term doomsday doctors, and I'm worried yeah. that those people are starting to snap a little bit and making moral judgments about the rest of us. And I'm like, no, my more ta- my morality is about keeping kids in school. My morality is allowing seniors who have three. Doses to gather and say hi and see each other's faces. Where, like, I don't have a myopic feel for this, but I'm starting to see a lot of name-calling. I'm starting to see people snap because I think they see the direction of the wind absolutely blowing hard the other way.
3: Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I mean, I, I've said this pretty much every week. I don't want to... Uh, sound like a broken record, but I think we're getting bonus tracks every week and that people are just coming up. They're saying to me, oh, yeah, we had the Omicron last week or two weeks ago. And, oh, how was it? And well, you know, yeah, it was pretty mild. Oh, do you think it's worth shutting society down over? I asked with a bit of a, uh, a sheepish grin and they say no, even though they were very much in support of previous lockdowns. Mm-hmm. No, they're not so sure about this one. So, yeah, people are pivoting. And, and look, you, you're, you're going to see all these interesting, as you said, Twitter threads or webinars between various epidemiologists and Medical specialist, or are you going to hear hospital administrators talk about well you know how can we actually surge capacity, is it, is it right to bring the kitchen staff in to assist the nurses, is this happening in one jurisdiction or, or bring fourth-year nursing students in, is this happening at Humber River and so forth. I don't think those should be things that occupy the public's mind anymore. That's just something for one specific sector to deal with their challenges. Every sector has their challenges. I don't think we have a whole of society panic anymore with COVID because, to your point, you've got adults who are triple boosted. Uh, Public health keeps talking about how mild Omicron is. I mean, the rest of us have to get on with our lives and and there are going to be some challenges in the healthcare system. And our frontline heroes are doing what they can to support uh, that less than 0.5 percent of people who do have this severely. And let's support them doing that. But, okay, let's move on.
0: Um, the uh, they're starting to talk a lot more in the, in the states on all sides of the political spectrum about what's described as one-way masking. That being, if you are boosted and you're wearing an N95 really it doesn't matter at all what anybody else is doing around you 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 are protected you should feel protected if a teacher is trip this is what i hear from teachers they are thrilled to be triple boosted they're glad it was finally made a priority i i and and they and they have their masks i've i've heard from the vast majority of teachers that say i've got a supply i'm not worried about running out that part at the minimum was delivered but then they say to me I'm not sure why I need a fully vaccinated high school kid like mine is in my class having to wear a mask for the entirety of a two hour, 15 minute lecture. That's what they're telling me anecdotally. But I I don't know how high that's rising up in in social and political and education circles.
3: Yeah. I mean, I hear from a lot of teachers who there's no denying that all of these Uh, all of these rules we have is making it that much more difficult to to properly teach young children in particular learning those facial cues and expressions and it's a big challenge i think a lot of teachers are looking forward uh to being done with all of this i mean you're right in the u.s they're just far more evolved in all of this whatever the political position it's all across the spectrum they're moving on in the uk uh, they're saying an end to all restrictions they have never sent entire cohorts home if one kid uh, get sick with the virus. In my column in today's paper, I'm talking about how their National Health Service actually uh, has posted this FAQ page 11 tips to deal with COVID anxiety. And it means uh, one of the things they actually say is it, it's not healthy to not do anything. You've got to go out and challenge mm-hmm. yourself. You've got to do some do some social activities. you got to start living your life. Ontario Health needs to start talking like that, because right now they're still saying, you know, everybody run for your lives, hunker down in your basement. I don't think they want to. When you listen to the subtext of Dr. Kieran Moore, I I think he's eager to make some progress. They're just, to your point, not sure what to do with all these, these doomsday voices they hear.
0: Um, acquired immunity i mentioned that at the beginning when we've got just the, just the most again calm and rational experts in the united states talking about it um why and bonnie henry did mention it in her news conference last week we're, we're lacking that we're lacking that with dr moore we're lacking that with with ms elliott we're lacking that with with most of our political leaders why what are what are we afraid of here
3: I don't know, but we're afraid of something. It is so frustrating just how absolutely blunt and broad-based the conversation is, as if we pretend everything is one size fits all, and we got to ghost away from all of that. To your point, much more nuance happening elsewhere. You know, one person in B.C., I was asking them, how do you guys have it so differently? And they talked about uh, different scenarios, but one of them is they don't have this sort of this barrage of these Twitter doctors who uh, make these sort of for the clicks, grandiose statements out there that lean towards the doom and gloom. It's just not the landscape over in B.C., and it is isn't in other various U.S. states as well. So we've got a very odd mix of ingredients here in Ontario that has made us, and, and this is backed by the evidence, one of the most restrictive jurisdictions in the Western world right now.
0: It's the one question I wished I'd ask uh, Stephen Del Duca. I got to a lot with him, and I'm going to replay it at 8.30, but but I haven't, and I mentioned this on the show yesterday, either, either Andrea Horvath or Stephen Del Duca. I'm trying to think of one thing in 22 months that the province locked down that they said, this is wrong, right. this thing should be open. And that's sort of the... The, the political hot potato we've got here is we've got a right-leaning government locking down hard and unlike in the U.S. where you might get, you, you know, again, you might get a Republican governor in, in Texas or Florida and the opposition can say, you're way too cavalier about this. You're way too liberal. And those might have been fair criticisms. Or you have a Democratic governor and the Republicans say, what are you doing to our kids? Masks on three-year-olds, eating lunch We don't have any of that here. And so we're stuck in this perpetuity.
3: Yeah, and there are a lot of great left-wing leaders in the United States, various mayors of, of New York, of Chicago, of Boston. Uh, you've got the premier of uh, British Columbia. They're all saying things much more towards reopening. And I wish Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del, Del Duca could uh, uh, could take their cues from those figures out there because there's no rule that says if you want to be uh, liberal or NDP, you've got to be this, this uh, shutter down for the next three or five years or what have you.
0: Um, this is uh, off, but you've written a ton about uh, off the uh, COVID pass, so that's a relief. It is and it isn't because China and the Olympics. You've got colleagues from the Sun that are uh, going over. Rob Longley's a friend of mine; he's going. Uh, my wife's going for the Globe. I don't think any journalist wants to go, but you do your right. job and you go where you get you, know, you get told to go. But unlike <laughs> unlike say somebody that's a war correspondent, um, like the great Anna Maria Tremonti or somebody like that, sports journalists aren't really used to this. What what. What's your observation? I'm not. I'm not asking if you'd pull everybody, but we're seeing that with broadcasters, and it's not for people's fear of their own health. It's the idea that China's gonna, you know, put them on a train, send them to another hotel, and lock them up for a long time. It's it's the fear of it. It's in our own household. We're talking about it at our house. Yeah,
3: exactly. I, I mean, it's the same as happening domestically. People don't want to get COVID right now, not so much because of what it does to them, but they don't want to be uh, having to go into isolation and cancel their plans for five days. They're afraid of those rules. And if they're afraid of those rules here in Ontario, you better believe they're afraid of the ones in China. I, I mean, uh, Greg, I know you've traveled around for sports. I mean, to to be told uh, by your home country, as Americans are being told, take a burner phone with you what wow that is unbelievable or to learn oh you've got to download this app from the chinese government oh it's just about making things easier for you while you're in china but the app is believed to have these odd workarounds, and they ban they even ban discussions which you may text each other on the app about questioning the legacy of former leader hu jintao like this is how excessively micromanaging authoritarian they are when it comes to uh, poking into what people are saying and doing and wanting to censor it. So there's a lot of anxieties about uh, people getting stuck in rules that, uh, let's just say, are not particularly fair and reasonable. So I I really feel for for everybody who's asking questions about Mm
0: -hmm. Will you watch, but sort of with like a little bit of an uncomfortable pit in your stomach about it, given where it is? I will say this. Back in the 1980s, Western media was
3: uh, was very much about challenging the USSR. I mean, there's the Rocky movie, there's various other movies where, well, in one Rocky, he goes to the USSR, and, and, and he kicks their butt, <laughs> and he's triumphant about it, and he's in their face about it, and then he, Stallone gives that speech about the power of the individual. One of the challenges is that a lot of our, our culture here, a lot of our films are actually underwritten by... Uh, various uh, financing mechanisms from China. But I just wish that we could have a little bit more of that. We could have a little bit more of a of, of a spirit to say, yeah, you know, we, we like the way we do things, and we don't like the authoritarianism over there.
0: Don't forget uh, the underrated 1984 film Red Dawn, Anthony. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I don't know why the Russians and the Soviets and Cubans want to run Oklahoma or Kansas <laughs> or Missouri. Like, I don't know. Do they love college football that much and grain? I, I don't know. But, but it happened, you know. It's
3: very true it happened but I would love to see a few more uh, a few more films like that made recently.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean again, people don't know. I, I think Rocky Balboa did break down uh, the the Cold War. Now, his wife told him you're an idiot, you're going to lose anyway. The, the if their marriage survived after that, it means couples can survive anything because she was a she's a bit of a Debbie Downer uh, about all this. Uh, she should have had a Twitter account. Let's put it that way. Loved having you on. Thanks for the conversation.
3: Thank you, sir. All the best.
0: Anthony Fury Toronto son. All right, so the restaurant industry's changed dramatically. Uh, Jacob Lorink is a business reporter for the Toronto Star. The headline, more than 200,000 restaurant workers left the industry during the pandemic. Here's where they went. And Jacob joins me now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. I wasn't referring to you as a laptop class person. Don't hang up on me. Not just yet, Jacob. I appreciate you coming on. All right, I'll hang in Um, there. This is really something because uh, as you document in the story and especially the the anecdotal stuff, a lot of these people around the same age, same demo, like we think of all, you know, waiters and servers and whatnot. I did it when I was 18, 19 years old. But we're talking about 40-year-olds and 33-year-olds that you quote, people that are, you know, halfway through not just their life but their work experience, and they said enough's enough.
4: Yeah, that's right. I thought that, that was that was kind of interesting, wasn't it? There were there were several people who were in their mid to late thirties who who all decided to up and leave. And I, I I mean, if there is a time for a transition, I suppose it's that. You know, by then these people have amassed you know a decade or two in the restaurant industry. They've seen uh, the best and the worst of it, and and by that point they're ready to go. Um, it's like we're talking about a massive industry. I think they are about. Somewhere north of 1.2 million people who work there. And so you're getting a wide range. Sometimes we assume that, uh, you know, it's mostly kids or people in their early 20s who are working server jobs. Uh, But it's not. You're really getting a wide range of people who come in with, I think, a lot of passion around uh, restaurants and kitchens and and being chefs. Um, And so they they hang around in the industry for a while uh, until they get burnt out.
0: The open close and the and the uh you know, the, they're closed, they're open, they're closed, they're open. Um, nobody's been through more of that in Canada than Ontario. No city has been more through that than Toronto. But what I find anecdotally, and and you document this in your story, is workers get to the they do see that the grass can be greener on the other side. We all can be sort of tunnel vision, tunnel focused, and it's sort of like, you know, dating so oh, I'll never I'll never love somebody as much as my ex girlfriend or ex boyfriend, and then you go on a first date and you're like oh, this is way better. What was I worried about that other person for? That's what they're finding in their careers, Jacob.
4: Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And, and, um, a lot of them have really sort of discovered their, their, their initial ambitions in this pandemic, in this weird, uh, sort of counterintuitive way, the pandemic may have given several of them a chance to just sort of think, uh, sit down and think about what they want in life. Um, one person I spoke to, she, was laid off from her server job at the beginning of the pandemic. And then she took a like a 12-week boot camp to learn how to code, and, and mentioned to me the other day that that would have only been possible because she had yeah. you know government subsidies that allowed her to just you know stay home for a bit and retool her skills. So you have a lot of people who are not only switching industries, but they're learning new skills and they're being able to do that. Uh, because they were able to get the, sort of the financial wherewithal to do that for a, a very brief but significant period of time.
0: Jacob Loring joining us on uh, Toronto Today on 640 Toronto on this Tuesday morning. Do we have a dual crisis now, not just, not just owners uh, having to pay rent downtown? That's been greatly discussed and debated. How involved the mayor has been, how, how you know, how, Um, how ingratiating the province has been in making sure that there's rent subsidies and and people don't get evicted. But the the dual crisis is the second part of it is just that plain labor shortage, getting good people for the good jobs in the restaurant industry.
4: Yeah, it's a huge, significant problem that I think is going to last for a long time. Uh, the, the way that labor has moved uh, during the pandemic has really shifted what is available in the restaurant industry. And as I mentioned in the story, uh, it's significantly it's because it's not that restaurant workers are leaving their jobs and just sort of staying home and becoming self-employed. What we're seeing is that they're going to different industries. They're starting new jobs. And that's significant because that means, you know, when you started a new job, you're likely to stay for a while. You have this massive pool of labor that's just moving to a different part of the economy, uh, and if they are in secure positions that you know are maybe more flexible, have better hours, it's not it's not obvious how you're going to get those people back.
0: Well, I want to ask about leverage because that that exists, um, and if if there's a bunch of people that want you know, your job when, when you first apply for it or my job when I first apply for it, um, then then you don't have a tremendous amount of leverage. I got to think that the people that have experience that are excellent at this, a great bartender, a great restaurant manager that handles finance as well, these people are in great demand and and probably can tighten the screws a little bit on vacation days and, and overall salary and bonuses and whatnot.
4: You're right. They, they can absolutely. And that's what we've been seeing for the past few months as well is that uh, there are a lot of restaurants and businesses in the food services industry that are offering a little bit more to servers now and to, and to kitchen staff uh, to keep them on. They've offered, you know, signing bonuses and retention bonuses. And, you know, several of them really want to keep their labor intact. That being said, that comes with its own trade off, which is that, you know, a lot of these restaurants, they work on pretty razor thin margins. They you know, have a limited amount of capital, and they can only raise wages so much. So, you know, sometimes we talk about uh, that, like wages being the silver bullet, and it's not necessarily it it drives up costs for the businesses as well, and can turn into this sort of spiral that not all uh, businesses can afford, you know, maybe the keg or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a place like that, a big chain can afford to really raise wages. But you know, the uh, the corner restaurant that's completely independent uh not necessarily
0: they're the ones suffering it is a fascinating read a, a bit of a uh, stark read but hopefully there's uh, there's potential to turn it around and and they, the places just need to stay open and incentivize the work I, I really enjoyed reading it jacob and thanks for making the time to come on for our audience thanks for having me you got it jacob loring from the toronto star nice to be here who's kidding who it's nice to be anywhere this is like uh katie holmes getting away from tom cruise <laughs> Um, Eight o'clock news Ooh. on the way with Dave Bradley. By the way, uh, Dave mentioned a uh, desire and a plan. He's got a plan, not a scheme. A plan's a positive thing to have. A uh, um, you know to go uh, deep sea diving. We'll save the story for the very end of the show, which shows a notable increase in yearly shark attacks. I didn't want to. I didn't want to spoil it for you. I've but.
5: actually gone on a shark dive. Oh um, no way! Yeah, it was kind of amazing. It was in the Bahamas uh, a few years ago. I had a GoPro. Actually, I put it on top of my head and sharks would hit it that's how close they got we get that video do yeah you still have it yeah i think it's on uh, it's on youtube actually. I, I
0: will go in a cage and yes. I, I my youngest son's obsessed with sharks was a lot early and he's 13 now we don't talk doesn't talk about it as much but i, I go we got to do the shark cage someday i would do that yeah i'm not swimming freely
5: no no it was there was no cage and well, i were, would do yeah, that it was just reef sharks so they weren't really all that interested in us but uh, they were interested in the fish that they were but how do you fed. know there's
0: not just an outlier
5: well you kinda you keep That's your really hungry. You keep your arms and, and all tucked in, your your fingers, you know, maybe in a fist so you make sure that they you don't know, don't get accidentally bitten. But we pet sharks as they swam by. You could touch them. It's kind of amazing. It's not
0: one person. Now there have been a lot of unprovoked bites, but there was one unprovoked death in as they describe it in 2021 in California but I'm always like well that'll be me I remember swimming you go to Coney Island (laughs) off New York and they have the big theme park there right like Tom Hanks big Coney Island and but you can also what a great day that is because you can ride rides and there's a bunch of restaurants around you but you can also swim and the water's not the best but even going like 30 feet out I'm thinking I'll be that guy. I'm going to feel it on my leg. I'm going to – I'll never run again. Oh, no. You, I'll never run your, again. Your hurdling d-
5: career will be over. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. I had a big uh, big track future uh, <laughs> ahead one way or the other. All right, Sheba, we saw this study, and I mentioned it right off the top at 530, but no one was listening then. Um, here, <laughs> Here's the uh,
6: – Is anyone listening now?
0: I hope. <laughs> pandemic fatigue, one in three Canadians report struggling with mental health. 23% say they're depressed. Now, I've seen other data that says the pandemic has had a threefold impact on on um, on mental health. And that makes sense that it's worse. Sure, it does. But I don't I, – 23% feels low for me. Do you, Is that low for you?
6: Uh, I don't – well, 23%, that's almost, you know, one in four – Canadians who are currently depressed. Uh, and I, I know a lot of depressed people right now. I do. I'm telling <laughs> talking you. talking to I, three of them. <laughs> really? Because I, I don't. I I'm not. Depra- I'm fighting for it, though. I'm fighting against it, and that's what we need to do. Look, it's it's the coldest time of the year. We're in a lockdown. It feels like this is never going to end. We feel like we've taken two steps backwards. We're all frustrated with our politicians. We're fighting for our. Some of us fighting for our lives. We all know a lot of people. I know a lot of women, a lot of moms who are suffering from extreme anxiety right now. They either don't want to leave the house. They're terrified to even go to the grocery store. Right? They're 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 having marital problems because everybody's locked in the house together it's just things are not going right they're struggling with their kids mental health and that takes a toll so you need to fight for it. you need to do whatever you can right now it's so important for all of us you sound
0: you sound in a better place now though because schools reopened like if i if i asked you this on january 4th you were in a worse place although uh, i although you want a steak dinner from me to be deter- <laughs> to be paid off at a point in time later when actually people can go and have a steak dinner
6: well, it was more frustration for me on January 4th, but as virtual school went on, and we did it very differently this year, what would we do? We put our mental health first, and it actually wasn't so bad because my kids weren't on screens all day. So that's what our theme is, and I'm telling you, it's working in our house. I make a point to get... Gyms are closed. I make a point to get outside, get my heart rate up every day. I make, It puts me in a better mood for my family. It puts me just prioritizing myself, and I have friends who are, who are in a really dark place right now. And I'm trying to get them out. I'm trying to get them, you know, get their bodies moving, get them, go see a therapy, virtual therapy. I'm all about therapy Mm. and having a therapist. It's so important it's so important right now dave i
0: feel like it's the bandwidth that people don't the struggle because it's been 20 months i think people feel well my individual danger because of my vaccination status isn't close to what it was 18 months ago and yes omicron transmits like a mother but it's not as severe but it's just it's just the, it's just the time that we've all put in we got nothing left at the, at the at the end of the candle
5: yeah and we've been given the finish line so many times right we've been yes. told that if you get fully vaccinated if we get this many people vaccinated will be fine and then you get to another stumbling block and then we're locked down again or we can't go to a restaurant or something like that happens and it just seems like we keep getting this false hope and then the rug gets pulled it's almost like Charlie Brown playing football and and that football gets pulled away just as you're going for the kick you know and that's sort of the feeling that a lot of people are dealing with right now and yeah Mm -hmm. of course it's going to
0: erode your mental health. Could Lucy be the next premier of our province if she decided to? <laughs> Quite possibly, I if she think. Gor, young Gord Rennie. Yes. I mean, you know, you, you you came in so bouncy, eager to spend time with us. And are we just depressing you? Have we no? Have we wrecked your mental health <laughs> last, last last year? I months? was
4: depressed. I had uh, I had uh, lost my job. My wife had a stroke, and uh, mm. I was. And then you throw the pandemic on top of it. Now I I got this job. I'm with uh, creative people, that I enjoy my job so much. My wife is fine. Thank you for asking. Yes, Yay. and. Uh, I mean, I have turned the corner, but I really felt the crush of it, you know, last year.
0: I hear you, man. And, yeah. you're, and you're a sharer. We like that. Sharing yeah. is better than caring in some way. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We will see you tomorrow with a live show on uh, 640 Toronto, obviously, 530 to 9 o'clock on Wednesday. It'll be great to have you there. Thanks very much for finding us here. Feel free to subscribe, share with a friend. We love spreading the word about what we're doing for you, the listener, and on this show, Toronto Today. Thanks again for listening.